Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Okay, with that, we are going to head now back into our series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, series title is In Him, and the title of today's message is The Christ-Centered Marriage. Uh, I've got six kids. I've been married to my wife, Heidi, for 28 years, uh, coming up on 28 years. And, uh, you know, this text of Scripture has, has been like a compass for me over the years, and I think there's so many great things in this text of Scripture to help us know how we ought to uh, lead our families and how we ought to design our homes and what the culture of our homes Ought to be like, you know, as Paul here is really getting into this part of the book of Ephesians that you might call practical Christianity, Paul's pattern throughout his letters and, you know, all his epistles was to begin by rehearsing gospel doctrine and truth, you know, remind us who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, who we are not in Christ, why we need Christ, what it means to be justified by faith, you know, God's grace and mercy. And then he transitions to practical, practical Christianity um, as an effect or response to the gospel empowered by uh, Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the gospel. And so here we are now in this part of the book where he's transitioned out of that sort of, you know, doctrinal assertions and, you know, the indicatives of the gospel. Now he's getting into some of the imperatives of the Christian life, this whole idea of practical Christianity, growing in God, uh, pursuing personal holiness, uh, sanctification, all those ideas here. And now he's getting right into our stuff here as he's talking about the family. He's getting right into our, our homes here. And so let's pick up the text in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, for we are members because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Let it be so today in our homes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a world now where 40% of our kids in our country go to bed without a father. In certain ethnic communities, it's 70%, 80%, even 90%. Push the responsibilities for uh, raising kids off to the women, to other children, schools, or even to our government. Somebody should feed my kids breakfast. Somebody else, somebody else should educate my kids. You know, these 
the ways that our society thinks today. Somebody else should lead my kids to Christ. Somebody else should comfort my wife. Somebody else should disciple my wife and children. And I think this text gives us a model of how we ought to engage in the ministry of our home. I think sometimes guys hear this text and it says, wives, submit to your husbands. And guys are like, ha ha, finally, I told you the Bible said, I didn't know where it said that, but I, I knew the Bible said that somewhere, submit, woman. But that is not at all the spirit of this text. First of all, verse 21 that I did not read right before this text says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So even though men and women have different roles in the home, a man's leadership in the home still includes mutual submission in some way to his wife. Second, Paul teaches not selfish leadership, but servant leadership. Paul tells men to be like Jesus. He says, love your, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And isn't that just like the gospel? It has a way of telling us to do the impossible, but then gives us the power to do it. What the gospel demands, it also provides. What the gospel demands, it also provides. And if God is calling us to be men to, who love our wives as Christ loved the church, then the Holy Spirit through the gospel will empower us to do so. To have a Christ-centered marriage is to imitate Christ, to imitate his servant leadership, and to trust him as the source to do the impossible. There's a book that I've used over the years in premarital counseling, whenever I'm counseling uh, couples to prepare for not only their wedding day, but also the marriage season, there's a book called When Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey. He says in the book, marriage is the coming together of two selfish people who must learn to live selfless lives together. And there, there's several things that gospel teaches us that are helpful in marriage. And at first you might go, how's that helpful? Here's what the gospel teaches us. Number one, men are sinners. Number two, women are sinners. Number three, we all need Jesus. And this is really important to remember. Your spouse needs Jesus. Your spouse needs grace. But your spouse is not Jesus. Yet oftentimes we are guilty of making our spouse our functional Jesus. You are going to meet all my needs. You are going to fulfill for me ultimate satisfaction. And let's contrast the way the world, I think, today, the modern world thinks about marriage, especially in America, and the way the gospel teaches marriage. I think the world today has a low view of marriage, but impossibly high expectations of marriage. The gospel flips that. The gospel has a high view of marriage and lower expectations. Now, why, why would... Why would the gospel have low expectations of marriage? It has low expectations in the sense that I understand that my spouse is not my ultimate satisfaction. My spouse is not Jesus. My spouse is not God. And I'm, I'm not going to look to my spouse in a way that is ultimate. I'm not going to look to my spouse in a way where I'm looking to them for that which I should receive from Christ. So my expectations are lower because my eyes are on Jesus. And, and yet that's not how I think we, we see marriage playing out today, oftentimes. People look to their spouses to, to rescue them, to be their ultimate. There was a sociologist a few decades ago um, who foretold of, a, of the fact that the more secular, secularized society becomes, the more people will replace God with romance. 
that we would one day in, in an age of atheism or an age when we're departing from you know, traditional Judeo-Christian values and, and seeking another worldview to seeking to live out our lives a different way, that people would look to one another for ultimate satisfaction, happiness, and identity instead of God. In other words, we'll need that. We'll need to have that itch itch. We'll need to fulfill that space in our hearts, but we'll look to it outside of God. And he's saying we would look to it in the romantic solution. We'd look to it in our spouses or our girlfriends or our boyfriends. Uh, for an example, uh, this is a song called You Are My Religion by a, a heavy metal band called uh, Firehouse. Just an example. And, and when you hear this song, you're going to think it's a Christian song, but I, 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 I kind of looked up the backstory of it, and it is not, it's a song to a person. It's not a Christian song. I've lost my faith in everything. I couldn't believe in anything until I put my faith in you. Is it a sin? Is it a crime to worship somebody all the time? Anytime I would do anything for you. I've found my heaven right here with you. Believe in me forever. I believe in you. Not just on Sunday. I love you every day. And I fall to my knees every night I pray since you've come and saved me for all of eternity. In the name of the Father and the Son, you are my religion. That's uh, actually frightening the, <laughs> the little, little blasphemy that's thrown in there considering that this is not written to God. I wasn't looking for a miracle, didn't think that love was possible, but your love has made me whole. And I pray that this will never end. You are my lover, my best friend. You took me in and you saved my soul. I found my heaven right here with you. Believe in me forever, I believe in you. Not just on Sunday, I love you every day. And I fall to my knees every night I pray. Since you've come and saved me for all of eternity. In the name of the Father and the Son, he says, you are my religion. And there it is right there. There's a person looking to their lover for ultimate things. For ultimate things. And so when I remember that my spouse needs Jesus as much as I do, and that they are not Jesus, they will cease to be my functional savior. They'll, they'll cease to be the... The object that I seek ultimate identity or satisfaction in. So the way the gospel helps our marriage is this, a couple things. Number one, I seek to point my spouse to Christ, not replace Christ. Number two, in a conflict, because I believe in my fallenness, I believe in my weakness, I believe in the doctrine of sin, in a conflict with my spouse, I suspect myself first. Hey, can you imagine that? If in our conflicts and our arguments, if we focus more on um, looking internally and being reflective as to what our own sin might be instead of a constantly pointing at other sins. And then number three, how does the gospel help our marriage? Because I believe the gospel, I can give my spouse grace where they are weak while they grow up in Christ. See, I have more grace for my spouse when I realize that they are not ultimate, that they are flawed like me, that they need Jesus like me, that they need grace like me. And we give them that grace when we believe in Jesus because the gospel teaches us that we're flawed and we're broken and we're weak and we need grace. Here's a little picture that I think can help us understand what good marriage looks like and bad marriage looks like. Um, on the top you have good marriage. I don't know if this is backwards in your video. When I'm recording this, it kind of looks backwards. Um, you'll get the idea. On the top you have a good marriage. You have, with every marriage, you have a person's character and a person's needs. When marriage is working well, you see the, the husband working on his wife's, meeting his wife's needs, and the wife working on meeting her husband's needs, and the husband working on his own character, and the wife working on her own character. 
Marriage can work like that. There's humility, there's grace, there's, there's servant-heartedness. Here's where marriage goes bad. See the bottom model? You see the husband working on his own needs and his wife's character, and his wife working on her own needs and her husband's character. And the whole thing gets flipped, and it begins to get toxic and destructive. It's like the old, uh, the old model for how someone moves from being our idol to demonizing them. You know, I desire, I demand, and then I judge, I punish. I desire, I demand, you will be like this for me, and then I judge, I punish. That's how someone moves from idol to demon in our lives, is they let us down, they let us down. But this model here teaches us how to serve one another in love, how to meet one another's needs as spouses. So, this tells us that we ought to love our spouses as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives specifically, as Christ loved the church. So, this applies to everybody. Women, as you're listening to this, I want you to, you know, internalize these ideas, uh, obviously. But men, I am talking to you because the scriptures are talking to you. And I I have to say what the scriptures are saying. This is talking to you, you guys. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? A couple things. <clears throat> Number one, he had a vision for her. Jesus' vision for his church was that she would be rescued. She would be pure. She would be whole. She would be redeemed, restored. That she would find her purpose in this world. That the reason for her existence in this world, that's for the glory of God. And that she would find, we would find a beautiful family in Christ together. So he had a vision for her. And that's challenging, I think, as guys, isn't it? We need to have a vision for our wives, a vision for our, wi- our, wives, uh, our wives' spiritual health and formation and uh, our, wife's, our wife's joy. And sometimes we just, we lack vision. So as the scripture says, we dwell carelessly. Uh, I, my, uh, one of my spiritual mentors, uh, Rick um, uh, Sinclair, talked about... Um, how when he was young, uh, in marriage, he he, uh, he he did not have a vision for ministry at the time. He he um, he wanted to. He was a school teacher, very gifted musician, and if I'm getting the story right, and um, his wife had been. She'd come out of radical feminism and uh, came to Christ and, and and read texts like this and realized, okay, I, I need to make this work. You know, I, I really need to learn how to respect my husband. And, and so, but she, she was a woman who had, you know, a lot of dreams and a lot of vision. And, and, and one day she came to him, Rick tells a story. She says, uh, okay, sweetie, what, so what, what, what's our vision as a family? And he's like, well, uh, okay, we, uh, we have some kids and, uh, you know, I'm going to get a good job. And, 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 and uh, yeah, we're going we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna have a family. We're going we're gonna to have a home. We're going to have life together. And she was sort of like, oh. That's it. <laughs> Not that she was down on children, but just like, what is the vision for our children? What is the vision for our family? And, and as Rick was challenging the men in a season when I was a younger man, uh, one of the questions he said the Lord asked him is what I want to ask you today. The Lord, he said, the, he felt like the Lord asked him a question. Do you have a vision big enough for your wife? Do you have a vision big enough for your home, big enough for your family? Um, or are you dwelling carelessly? And I think there's a challenge in that. We need to have a vision for our wives, for our uh, 
for our children. And, you know, this, this scripture speaks of washing your wife with the water of the word. Um, you know, part of my vision for my wife is for her spiritual health. And so uh, it is on me to bring the bread of life to my wife and to bring the bread of life to my children. Not that they shouldn't have their own personal devotions or receive themselves from their, you know, their youth group or uh, community group or, or church gatherings. But it is on me to, to position myself before my family to feed them the bread of life and to position my family in a, in a place where they would receive the word of God and be washed with the water of the word. One of the ways I do that is um, sometimes I'll just, you know, instead of like, I tried years ago to schedule a, a time with my wife and uh, we just weren't very successful at, at schedule, scheduling a rhythmic, uh, a rhythmic time together. So what I decided to do was just in a rhythm of life, just start conversations with my wife and share with her things that the Lord was ministering to me and encouraging me with out of the word. So she's making dinner. I'll go hop up on the counter and I'll say, sweetheart, I was in the word today. And uh, can I tell you something that, you know, really encouraged me? Or I'll do my, if I'm doing my uh, Bible reading, you know, with her nearby, I'll, I'll say, sweetheart, check this out. And I was reading in First John and listen to what this says. And, and we're just dialoguing about the gospel and I'm washing my wife with the water of the word. That's part of my vision for her is that she would be spiritually healthy, that she would be um, thinking gospel thoughts and, and walking in her identity in Christ. And so I've got to give her the word to do that and position my family in a place where they can receive the gospel and hear the gospel. So how did Jesus love the church? He had a vision for her. And God wants us as men to have vision for our wives and our families. Number two, it says he gave himself up for her. Now there's two... Uh, there's two commands here that I want to kind of bring together. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. And then it says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. So this is saying, if you combine these two verses, wives, submit to your husband's love. Wow. That puts a, different, a whole different face on it, doesn't it? Wives, submit to your husband's love. That's how we submit to Christ. We submit to his love. He, he, he calls us to believe in his love and receive his love. And his love wins our hearts. And we want to be in a relationship with him. We want to follow him. We want to, to serve Christ because he wins our hearts with love. And that's how it's supposed to work. Let's talk about this word love. I think looking at this word love in this text is very helpful to understand how the marriage relationship of wives submitting to husbands and hus husbands loving their wives is supposed to work. Now, in our English language, we only have one word for love. Now, so I love my wife, and I love pizza. All right, so, like, obviously it's a different kind of love, but um, we only have one word for it. But the Greek, in the Greek language, they had more nuanced words. They had multiple words for love, more, description, more descriptive words for love, and I want to lay those out for you. There's three primary words for love. Eros, phileo, and agape, love. Those are all words for love in Greek. Eros is the root word of the English word erotic. So that tells you a little bit of, about what kind of love this is. It's like lust love. It's selfish love. It loves for the sake of what it can get from its object. The second kind of love is phileo love. That's the root word for the city Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. And that's what it is. It's, it's brotherly love. It's mutual love. It's response love. 
Love that loves for the mutual benefit of what the object of its love provides. So this love doesn't exist without two, because there, there's this, there's this uh, interaction and this giving of that brotherly, brotherly love, mutual love one to another. The third word for love is agape love. This is selfless love. It's God love. It's love that loves for the benefit of its object to its own harm. In other words, it'll sacrifice itself to express and show that love. Now, that's God love. Guess which word is used when it says, husbands, love your wives. Now, I know what a lot of you men wanted to say, right? Husbands, eros, your wife. And you're like, no problem. Not what it says. The word that is used is husbands, agape, love your wives. Selfless, love your wives. God, love your wives. Love your wife for the benefit of your wife. That's what it's saying. Now, are wives told to love their husbands in scripture? It's very interesting. I find this fascinating. Wives are only told one place in the New Testament to love their husbands. It's in Titus 2, and it says, teach the young women to love their husbands. Guess which word is used? Not eros, not agape. Wives, it says, phileo, your husbands. Now, what is phileo love? You remember what I just said a moment ago? It is response love. Oh, in other words, her love boots off of her husband's love. That the, the command for a woman to love her husband is entirely dependent upon a man showing agape love to his wife. This is fascinating, very telling of what Paul's teaching here about the marriage relationships. Husbands are called to agape their wives so that women can phileo their husbands, not phileo, phileo their husbands. Another way to say this is that if men don't agape their wives, the woman has nothing to respond to. I remember uh, over the years, many, many times I found myself appealing, pleading with a husband who's not showing agape love to his wife, whether it's through a, an extramarital affair or just being a jerk. And uh, I remember one guy in particular, he just refused to repent, refused to see his sin, refused to pursue his wife, refused to uh, love his wife as Christ loved it. And just this pattern. And after a while I said, broke. It, can I just ask you a question? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Because what I'm seeing right now is not Christian. It's not the, it, there's no evidence of grace in your, your, your life and your marriage, your, your, the way you're interacting with your wife. Now, I'm not saying he's not a Christian, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That should be the mark of the Christian husband. And in some ways, the, the authenticity of our faith is measured by how we treat other people, especially our families, especially our wives. So how did Jesus love the church? He had a vision for her. He gave himself up for her. And finally, number three, Jesus nourished and cherished her. He nourished and cherished her. The gospel here teaches us that your wife is a garden and that the man is the gardener. And if a man doesn't like what he sees in the garden, he needs to take some responsibility because he planted it. And Paul here appeals to our self-preserving nature to get us to understand this. He's saying, how do you treat your own body? You wouldn't intentionally 
harm yourself or hurt yourself. And so the argument Paul is making here is since you're one with your wife and she's literally part of you, you harm yourself if you mistreat her the way that you would if you dropped an anvil on your foot. Well, you wouldn't drop a sledgehammer on your foot or an anvil on your foot. Why would you do that? It'd be stupid. Paul's saying, he's, he's really saying, don't be stupid. Guys, don't be dumb. Don't hurt yourself. You're harming yourself when you mistreat your wife. It's, to your own, it's a self-inflicted wound because she is one with you. Now, we get to this part of the text that, um, that talks about submission. And some struggle with this, this whole idea because of this very anti-modern command of Paul. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. You know, the husband wants to cherish and nurture his wife. There needs to be that, that receiving of that. And we talk about submitting to his love. Let me talk a little bit more about the nature of the submission here. First of all, it's, it's cheerful. It's, it's, it's willing. It's, uh, the, the woman wants to respect and submit to her husband because of his love for her. Second, it's complementary. Submission does not equal inferiority. After all, Jesus submitted to the Father in his earthly life. Yet, was Jesus inferior to the Father? No, he wasn't. He was an equal part of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus submitted to his Father in a complementary way. He simply fulfilled the design that the Father had for him in, this, in his earthly life. There was perfect unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit about the roles and the mission of our salvation. The Father chose to save us, the Son saved us, and the Holy Spirit applies the salvation of the Father to us. Perfect unity in the God. There was no inferiority, and yet Jesus submitted to the Father. Now let's circle back to what we heard earlier. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does this mean? This means that men and women's roles are not one of superiority and inferiority, but one of mutual submission to one another and to God in the relationship. And you might describe it like this, that the husband, because the scriptures use this word, is the head of the wife and the family, and the wife is the referee. What does it mean when the scriptures call the man the head? Men, let me ask you a question. When our first father and his wife in the Garden of Eden fell from grace. Who sinned first, Eve or Adam? Eve did. We know the story. Eve partook, and he was passive, and he observed. Then when God comes in Genesis 3, who does God call out to? To hold to account in Genesis 3. He says, Adam, where are you? Now, why does he do that? Is it, is, that he didn't not, you know, is it that he didn't hold Eve responsible for her sin? No, we read in Genesis 3 that God came to her also and spoke about her sin and that there are consequences today in women because of the sin of our first mother Eve. But God held the man accountable. He held the man primarily responsible because he's the head of the family and he's the head of his wife. Men, you need to know that you will stand before God and give an account for your wife and your family and how you've treated them. Husbands in particular need to know that we will stand before God, our maker, our creator, the one who knows all and sees all, and we are going to give an account for our lives as men. And if we're privileged to be husbands, 
we'll have to give an account for our wife. If we're blessed with children, we'll have to give an account for our children. They will give an account also, but we will give an account for everyone that is under our authority. This is what it means when the Bible uses the language that the husband is head of the wife, that we are responsible in the sight of God for the well-being of our wives and children. So we nourish them, we cherish them. And so men, in this message on men and marriage, you need to know that if your wife struggles or fails to, to grow, if your children struggle or, or fail to grow, ultimately it is your responsibility in the sight of God in addition to their responsibility, but it is your responsibility as well to answer for that. Now, God is, is fair in his judgment. The soul that sins shall die. We understand that. But to the degree that we have a responsibility in the nurturing and cherishing and development of our wives and children and their health, we will answer for that. And that's what it means when the Bible uses the word head in this text and in so many other places. Men, you are the head of your home. You're the head of your wife as Christ is the head of the church. And that is a biblical reality. God is not saying, hey, you should do it this way. You should act like the head. The Bible is saying it is this way. It is so. So the question is not, is the man the leader? Is the man head? Is the man responsible? The question is, is the man doing a good or a bad job? That's really the only question we have here. Think about it in terms of other organizations. When a company fails or struggles, who is ultimately responsible? The CEO. When a nation fails or struggles, who's responsible? The president or the king or whoever's in charge. How about a sports team? When a sports team struggles or fails, ultimately it's going to be the coach or the general manager that's called on the carpet. Let's say it's a military unit that heads out to war and the, the mission fails. Who's going to have to answer for that? It's going to be the highest ranking officer. Why is that? Because they're the head. Others under their authority may bear some responsibility, but because they're in the highest authority, they bear the most responsibility and they will be the ones to answer for that. So the husband is what? The husband is the head. Now, who decides whether or not the husband's doing a good job? Most men will say, I do. I decide. I'm going to self-evaluate. Paul says, I, Paul said he wasn't even capable of judging himself and neither are you. Ephesians 5.21 says we practice mutual submission in the body and in the home. So where does that put the wife? I mentioned a minute ago, the husband's the head. The wife is the referee. In that whole section we read in Ephesians 5.22 through 33, it's prefaced with that statement, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what this means is if your wife says, sweetheart, you, you blew it. Guess what? You blew it. Sweetheart, you're not tender enough. Dude, you ain't tender enough. If she says you're not investing in the kids enough, you're not giving enough time to the kids or to me, bro, she's right. She's the referee. So, man, I'm going to ask you to do this. Get your wife a referee shirt. Joking about that part. But I want you to ask your wife. Say this to your wife. I believe in Ephesians 5.21. I'm the head of the household, but you are the referee. You, you get to tell me whether I'm succeeding or failing, whether I'm helping or hindering. And I want you to be honest with me. I want to challenge you to do that with your wife, before your wife. And allow the dynamic of, that's one of the ways we can cherish and nurture our wives is by liberating them to function in the ways that God has designed. Some application in closing here. How do we apply this message, this important message about the home? Number one, 
I want to, um, sorry, a little shaky table there. Men, I want to encourage you to be an expert, to, be, to try to seek to become an expert in being a husband and a dad. Now, maybe you're saying, can I, is anybody an expert? I don't know. But seek to become an expert in being a husband and a father. I remember how challenged I was as a young as a young uh, husband and father. I'm like, man, I'm reading all these books about being a, an evangelist, about preaching the gospel, about doing ministry, uh, you know, about being a musician. I'm, I'm learning all these things. And yet the most important part of my life is being a husband and father. I better read up on that and, you know, become more educated on how to be a a godly husband and father. And so I, I began to read a lot more and, and, and try to learn how to grow in that ministry to my wife and my children. Number two, application. I want to encourage everyone to treasure marriage. Treasure marriage and treasure your spouses. Um, we live in a society that doesn't treasure marriage anymore or it's redefined marriage to become something it never was intended to be. But I want you to treasure this idea of a man shall leave his wife or his mother and father and a woman will leave her mother and father and come together and create this one, this oneness in marriage. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a godly thing. It's God's design. And, uh, and, and I want to encourage you to treasure this. And I want to challenge the, uh, the young people listening to this um, with, with this. The, the two most important decisions you'll make in your life. Number one, what are you going to do with Jesus? And number two, who are you going to marry? And I want you to be sober-minded about those things. What, are you going to follow Jesus? Are you going to trust in him? Is he just the God of your pastor, the God of your parents, the God of your grandfather, grandmother, or is he your God? I want to challenge you to answer that question. What are you going to do with Jesus? And number two, who are you going to marry? You know, maybe you don't know that yet. Probably a lot of you don't. Um, but it's a serious question. And I want to encourage you to, to approach that question with sobriety. And, you know, if, if, you're, if you date or court, I want you to treat the opposite sex like a treasure. And, and, and don't just, uh, you know, treat it like it's, you know, a, a toy or, uh, you know, just some, uh, some temporary thing that you're seeking to get pleasure out of. That, that's, that's eros love. That's, or, or it's just phileo. But agape, agape. Show that God love and say, and I want you, as you enter relationships, ask God. Don't ever enter a relationship unless there's a possibility that this is a person that you, you could marry. We need to treasure marriage and treasure other people to that degree. Doesn't mean you're going to marry a person, you know, the first person you date. But we need to be sober-minded about this thing because it's a holy thing and it's a godly thing. And it's a, and it's a very important part of our lives. Number three, uh, husbands, I want to encourage you to wash your wife and your family with the water of the word. I talked about that earlier. Create context where they are receiving the gospel and you can, you can encourage them in the gospel. And finally, number four, we're always going to terminate our messages on Jesus. Remember Christ as our head, our head, our model. He's our example of how we are to be husbands and fathers. We, we have it all in him. And then finally, number three, he's our source. He is the power source to become the godly men that we're called to be and women, the godly women you're called to be and children to be the children and eventually the young men and young women that you're called to be. Jesus is enough. Father, bless this word. Let it be like seed on good ground, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening today. And until next time, like I just said, Jesus is enough. God bless you. 
Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.